Good morning, everybody, and um, thank you for coming. Uh, we've been, uh, I suppose, gratified by the response to uh, this workshop this morning. It, it came about over a cup of coffee when I was interested in the notion of, of regulatory shame or how doctors who are deemed to have done something wrong are sometimes publicly shamed in a kind of discipline and punish kind of manner. Uh, where Luna was writing her book, which is excellent and I advise you all to buy it immediately, um, on the phenomenology of, of shame. And because we were coming at the same notion from two completely different angles, we wondered whether there was some merit in trying to hold an event that would explore different aspects of shame, shame in the body, and shame in healthcare and healthcare provision. And so we came up uh, with this meeting today. Um, we applied for funding and we were very uh, gratified to the Wellcome Trust and to the Trinity Long Room Hope here for providing the funding to allow us to go ahead with the meeting today. Uh, one of the nice things about organising a meeting is that you get to invite who you want to speak at it. And it's quite nice to get people who you are interested in hearing what they have to say. So there's no pressure on the speakers, but I expect to be interested and entertained. And that's all I have to say. And you know, to say a little more. Um, so thank you all for coming. I'm really delighted to see everyone here. Um, so we have a really mixed uh, range of talks tonight, with, uh, or sorry, today, with a variety of different speakers addressing the topic of shame stigma in medicine from many different angles and intersecting with lots of different issues, including things like mental health, um, plastic surgery, cosmetic surgery, um, public health policy, the clinical encounter, and, and other topics. So I think you'll find it be a really interesting variety of topics and themes, and hopefully some lively discussion as a result. I'm going to introduce our first speaker, and I'm really delighted to introduce Dr. Brendan Kelly um, today to, to open this workshop. Um, Brendan is a consultant psychiatrist at the Matter Hospital in UCD. And he's here today to give us a talk entitled One Flew East, One Flew West, Stigma, Shame, and Psychiatry. Thank you very much. Well, I'm going to depart slightly from my script to start with because I just had a text message which seems most um, apt for the morning in it. I'm a psychiatrist and we deal with issues to do with shame and stigma constantly. And one of the consequences of this text is that I need to leave immediately after this talk. But here's what it says. It says, Brendan, um, the manager of an Irish soccer team on News Talk has just referred to the psychiatry ward in the matter as a dungeon in the basement of the hospital where people are institutionalized on News Talk Radio this morning, apparently at around half eight. Now, I work at the matter, and I work in that dungeon. Um, and, we, and what's really interesting about working in psychiatry is how this kind of image of psychiatry persists no matter what we do about it. It's one of the weird things about psychiatry, which is that the myths have far more power than any reality. Um, so for example, I happen to know that Ireland has a lower rate of psychiatric admission voluntarily than other EU countries, and a lower rate of psychiatric detention than other countries now, or very low in EU terms. I also happen to know Ireland has a very low rate of suicide in EU terms. We are now and have been well below the EU average for a long time, and it is decreasing every year. 
And yet, the myths that surround psychiatry are so powerful that they can almost not be addressed. It's almost beyond our power to address them. They seem to be tapping into something else. And they're always negative. They're always stigmatizing. So anyway, anyway, apart from that aside, I'm going to go back to what I'm supposed to be talking about, which is um, stigma, shame, and psychiatry. Now, um, 40 years ago, that's 1975, and I hope that doesn't make anybody feel old, uh, fantasy film, films released a film version of Ken Kesey's novel, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And the title comes from a nursery rhyme, One Flew East, One Flew West, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Now, the cuckoo's nest in question was an asylum, and the one who flew over it was Randall P. McMurphy, a petty thief committed uh, to a U.S. state mental hospital for assessment. Having challenged virtually all of the procedures and protocols of the psychiatry ward with disruptive consequences for patients and staff alike. One flew over the cuckoo's nest took a bracing, direct approach to mental disorder and psychiatric hospitalization. Now, it was filmed in a real psychiatric hospital, Oregon State Hospital, and um, the wards were the, uh, the actual psychiatry wards of the hospital. And most fascinatingly, the character of Dr. Spivy, the psychiatrist, was played by <coughs> Dean Kent Brooks, who was a psychiatrist. He was the physician and superintendent of the asylum at the time. And he was a pioneer and a reformer and so forth. And he was promoting a very patient-centered approach in the asylum. Many of the extras in it were patients and staff in the asylum as well. Brooks, uh, in real life, and uh, there he is playing Dr. Spivy, was a tremendously interesting man. He used to bring patients and staff alike off on these mountaineering trips and hiking trips, and he continued his advocacy for the mentally ill long after his retirement. So One Flew Over the Cookies Nest is an interesting movie, not just for what you see, but for how it was made. Um, it's also interesting because class after class of medical students, I ask them, have you seen, what movies have you seen? And always, more than 50% of them have seen one flew over the cookies nest. Um, and that's where they get their image of psychiatry from. Now, the film was unflinching in its honesty, portraying the harsh suffering of mental disorder and the harsh treatments of the day. It was hugely popular in the US and Europe, won five Academy Awards, and its popularity, has, popularity hasn't wavered. It's lodged in public consciousness. The character of Nurse Ratchet is an indelible feature of popular lore. And the film's vivid portrayal of ECT, delivered um, without anaesthetic and for punitive reasons, remains as affecting and powerful today as it was when it, the movie was first released. Some of you, does anyone remember the film? Has anyone watched it in recent months? Very interesting scenes in it, lovely complicated scenes that I like. For example, when they're trying to break out of the hospital and I think they smash a window or something. And then, um, you know, uh, the Jack Nicholson character says, OK, let's go, let's go. And some of the people say, no, we're, we're actually staying. We were, you know, we're not detained here at all, and we're not, we're not going. And um, so, lots of nice, complicated things there. Obviously, the ECT was very dramatic. Now, today, ECU, ECT is used very differently, and um, it's very rarely used. And it's uh, for specific reasons. It's uh, subject to the uh, guidelines from the National Institute of Clinical Excellence in the UK, uh, whatever that thing's now called. Uh, the Mental Health Commission and the Royal College of Psychiatrists. In fact, ECT is now so incredibly <laughs> regulated that many places can just no longer do it because the, re the regulatory uh, framework surrounding it is so incredibly dense. It's almost been regulated out of existence, and it's, it's not very commonly used at all. But overall, certainly my view of um, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is that it challenged certain forms of stigma and had a very bracing, direct approach to mental illness, to psychiatric hospitals, very open approach to it, and its portrayal of the suffering and the humanity of both the staff and the patients, 
and it also created a stigma as well. So there were two sides to this. And it prompts quite profound questions about the nature of shame and stigma, especially what within a system, an asylum system, that both induced shame in the patients, but was itself something that society had good reason to be ashamed about. Uh, and that's certainly true in Ireland as well, where our asylum system was this quite extraordinary creation. Um, and then over the past four or five decades, it's, we, we've turned that on its head very considerably. So um, stigma in psychiatry is a very big topic. The stigma is a mark of shame or discredit. And shame is a painful feeling of distress or humiliation owing to a consciousness of wrong or foolish behavior. Now, neither shame nor stigma can be experienced or arguably exist without self-awareness. And this is the very quality that is disturbed or altered in many psychiatric disorders and states of psychological distress. Conditions like social anxiety disorder, if we agree that that exists, uh, depressive illness, body dysmorphic disorder, all involves feelings of guilt, shame, and self-stigmatization, which, which, which is an extremely powerful form of that stigma. Now, stigma associated with mental disorder, commonly related to poor or limited understanding or exposure to uh, mental illness or mental uh, psychological problems. And stigma has a strong negative effect on physical and mental health and a deleterious effect on health-seeking health, health behavior. Now, the College of Psychiatrists had an anti-stigma campaign, a uh, focused campaign, 97 to 2002, and they performed a survey to look at public opinion in the UK about seven disorders, depression, panic disorder, schizophrenia, dementia, eating disorders, alcoholism, and drug addiction. And they reported people with these conditions were seen as hard to talk to, and people with schizophrenia, alcoholism, or drug addiction were seen as dangerous and unpredictable. In Ireland, a survey of 1,400 people showed 74% of those interviewed knew nothing whatsoever about schizophrenia, 56% knew nothing whatsoever about depression. And this was in 2005. Despite the fact that depressive disorders have a prevalence of up to 12%, and you know, many of us will think that newspapers are now absolutely full of articles uh, about depression or about suicide, people telling their stories of mental illness, people writing memoirs, but we, that's just what we see. Apparently, there are vast sectors of the population who never come across this material at all. And what particularly astonishes me in my clinical work is the people who have never heard of mindfulness. Now, many people in this room will think that you can't walk down a single corridor anywhere, but mindfulness is popping out at you. Little mindfulness stickers are being put on lampposts and post little things about two minutes of mindfulness. And it, it's just there's an extraordinarily mindless embracing of mindfulness which more or less undermines the whole thing. Uh, and yet there are people out there who have never even heard of the concept, which seems to be the other extreme. Now, I'm very much a mindfulness skeptic as well as a mindfulness believer. But I, uh, mindfulness is part of a very specific psychological tradition. It's a very powerful method, but it's simply not possible simply to yank it out of context and apply it like a Band-Aid everywhere you see some kind of a problem. Uh, but it is, it is a powerful technique. Anyway. And direct personal contact with people with mental disorder improves understanding, and that's very, very clear. And media portrayals are incredibly important. The WHO has had several anti-stigma initiatives, including some aimed at improving the accuracy of media reports. One study found that newspaper articles are not hostile to psychiatry, and coverage tends to improve. But nonetheless, there is still a huge sector of the population who have very little understanding or familiarity with psychiatry, and it's likely many of them are listening to news talk this morning, and all they heard is that there is a terrible, terrible dungeon in the matter where people are being institutionalized as we speak. I need to get back there and let them out. <laughs> <laughs>
Okay, in 2014, about four decades after one threw over the cuckoo's nest, a remarkable Irish film called Patrick's Day did something very similar to uh, one threw over the cuckoo's nest. It addressed certain forms of stigma about mental disorder through its honest, direct uh, exploration of relevant issues, but also perpetuated other forms of stigma, most notably in relation to ECT and institutions, psychiatric institutions. Has anyone seen this movie? It just came out last year. Yeah, that's a real pity. Not a lot of people saw this, and it's one of very few movies about uh, mental illness set in Ireland, made in Ireland, and it's really important as such. It's well worth checking out, and it's available on DVD now. So this movie tells the story of a young man with schizophrenia and demonstrates that despite many misunderstandings associated with it, people with schizophrenia retain the abilities to live and love, hope and dream, just like everybody else. Um, with the illness, uh, they may have temporary interference with some of these things, but all things are still possible, um, as the movie demonstrate quite, demonstrates quite beautifully. The film also demonstrates a high level of misunderstanding associated with schizophrenia and the effects this can have on people with schizophrenia <coughs> as well as their families and friends. But in addition to these typical features of schizophrenia, Patrick's story, as told in the film, is atypical. For example, the film shows Patrick receiving ECT in a setting that's more reminiscent of the 1960s than 2014. It's dramatically institutional, the treatment is traumatic, and uh, the clinical staff all leave the room while he's having a seizure and just leave him, leave him there having an epileptic seizure in this old institutional-looking room. Now, that is clearly inconsistent with the, all the guidelines regarding ECT, which are rigorously enforced now by the Inspector of Mental Health Services and others. And ECT, if given now, certainly where I work, and I, I, I've been a consultant for 10 years, I've given ECT exactly three times, and uh, it takes place in theatre, in the search, in, in, like in, 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 in theatre, just like any, uh, like a surgical procedure. So that's a pity about the movie. Um, Secondly, the film shows Patrick being violent on a number of occasions. Now, after almost two decades of working with people with schizophrenia, I can say with confidence the vast majority of people with schizophrenia are not violent in the slightest. The proportion of violence attributable to mental illness in society is very, very low. And presumably, Patrick's episodes of violence, although typical, were included for dramatic purposes to explore a full range of scenarios within a 90-minute movie. Nonetheless, it was regrettable. Ireland is very interesting in relation to the stigma associated with violence in the mentally ill. Because in the UK there is what I can only call hysteria from time to time, that the mentally ill are not being institutionalized enough, that there are disturbed, violent, dangerous, mentally ill people wandering about the place with knives and hammers and things. And this is because the English tabloid press has responded hysterically to a small number of cases in the UK, particularly the Christopher Clunas case, in Ireland, intriguingly, we don't lack for such cases any more than the UK, but the media haven't leapt upon them. There isn't a public safety agenda here. And we saw this recently when we were revising the mental health legislation here, that there isn't, there never is this hysterical media outcry here that mentally ill people are dangerous and need to be locked up. It's just not a feature of public discourse. And in the UK, it is, and it largely shaped their legislation. We don't have that here. I don't know why, I think it's a good thing we don't have it, but it, it's a remarkable feature of that sort of the, the, the public landscape about this. So this movie was interesting, but it was regrettable in its portrayal of ECT and regrettable in showing violence, which is most un-Irish. Un um, that said, most of the violence in the movie occurred in response to misunderstandings or callous behavior by others. The aggression and the violence were uh, provoked due to misunderstandings and due to Patrick's subsequent 
frustration. He didn't instigate violent acts, didn't know about, he didn't go out to kill people. And this also rings true with my experience of schizophrenia, where the vast majority of people, if they get annoyed, it's because of frustration and ill treatment which they receive constantly, and both acutely and chronically. Third, but most, most stigmatizing in this movie was the institutional setting in which Patrick lived. They seemed to have him, have him living in some kind of psychiatric hospital that looked more like a prison than a hospital does. And the majority of people with schizophrenia live in their own homes with their families and not in formal settings, let alone the highly institutionalized setting shown in the movie. Again, presumably this was included in order to demonstrate that some people with schizophrenia spend time in hospitals or hostels or the like and they needed to get everything into a movie, but the fact is those settings really don't exist any longer. So why was this stigmatizing and unrepresentative setting included? Why is it somehow, uh, why is it somehow unacceptable to present the reality of life with schizophrenia, which can involve substantial challenges and stigma in its own right without adding stuff in? Why is it necessary to hark back to the images of the past and could the dramatic effect not have been achieved in some other way? Now, presumably, they were all included for dramatic purposes. No single story of schizophrenia is entirely typical, and everything was condensed into a 90-minute movie. Uh, and there is much to praise in the film. It portrays a person with schizophrenia as possessing all of the abilities, hopes, and dreams someone else enjoys, and this is precisely as it should be. People with schizophrenia are generally, in my working day, the sanest people that I meet, and they're the clearest, and the most reliable, and the most logical, uh, compared to a lot of people I work with, and I'm not too perfect outside that room. I'm trying to scream on that. <laughs> and that's, of course, because one in four people, they say, will have a so-called mental disorder at some point in life. So there is, no dis there is no distinction between them and us. There is no other and us. It just doesn't exist in, in psychiatry and shouldn't exist. And others all stigma matters to everyone, not just, not just the mentally ill. Um, now, the stigma associated with psychiatry is particularly interesting because it comes hand in hand with a lot of rhetoric about community-based care. Every report about psychiatry in Ireland you know, talks about a move to community care. Uh, and this started in 1966 with the uh, first big commission, and every statement of policy since then has more or less said the same thing. And yet, despite this rhetoric, there's also this, this, this core of stigma and shame going on. And this could be an historical um, problem. In the 1800s and early 1900s, the Irish asylums were used as solutions to all kinds of social, social problems, housing the intellectually disabled, remo removing unwanted family members, and so on. What's interesting about Ireland is while this was an international phenomenon in England, France, and the US, Ireland's committal rates in the past were higher uh, than anywhere else and slower to decline, although they are now down very low indeed. The increase in committals was obviously influenced by a whole range of things. There's no evidence at all Ireland uh, had more uh, had greater incidence of mental illness then or now. Absolutely no evidence to suggest that at all, despite the much, much quoted statistics, um, Ireland's rates are the exact same as everywhere else. So we're looking at social, political, and legal factors, or demographic factors, um, producing the increase in institutionalization. Um, what, what is very clear, it's a very tangled tale, but what's very clear is that rates of institutionalization were very societally determined. Okay? For now, much of the 1800s and 1900s, doctors had no say in who was admitted to asylums and who wasn't. They were sent in by justices of the peace, and decisions were made by asylum boards. Now, bringing doctors into the equation that was very strongly <coughs> in the 1940s didn't change things for a couple of decades, um, but, but there were very strong social forces pressing people into asylums. 
And the asylums were interesting because they're often portrayed as being these monolithic and permeable institutions. Uh, but, but they really were anything but. They were very integrated institutions. And uh, most disturbingly, the Catholic Church wasn't involved in them at all. And tremendously interesting, the church didn't get into mental health care. It's tremendously upsetting at this point as we're trying to explain it. Because our favourite explanation, obviously, for all the ills in Irish society is to somehow blame the church. And it's our defence mechanism, and it's interesting. And it taps into this bizarre idea that the church is somehow other. That if we blame the Roman Catholic Church, we're absolving ourselves of blame, as if the church was something entirely external, visited upon us, and had nothing to do with us. Um, we don't even have that defence here. Um, look, turning to doctors, though, it is clear that the asylum doctors, such as myself, I suppose, um, of the times were complicit in the high rate of committal, <laughs> along with families, courts, police, and broader society. But interestingly, the asylum case records are filled with letters from doctors imploring the state to release patients, asking families to take patients home, or suggesting programs of home care, something that certainly Dublin Castle wasn't interested in at all uh, at the times. But for the most part, the doctors and treaties to get people out fell on entirely deaf ears, mainly because families were just too poor to take people home. And thus, the asylums, with their great big stigmatizing aura, uh, grew and grew. And of course, the medical and nursing professions weren't the only stakeholders in the asylum system. And um, the asylums were huge. And I'll give you an example. In Balmaslow in 1951, the town had a population of 5,600 people of whom 2,100 were patients in the asylum. <laughs> so of the others, okay, uh, most of them either worked there or their families were involved in supplying or servicing it in some way. So when people talk about you know, hidden, cut-off institutions, like there's absolutely no way in a town of 5,500 people where 2,000 of them are patients uh, that the institution is cut off from the town at all. And when you look at the records here, you find enormous rates of admission and discharge rather than the prolonged institutionalization that has become iconic. So these were very much embedded institutions. Virtually everyone in the locality was a stakeholder. And communities and families were powerful users of the asylum in certain ways, and very subtle ways with seasonal admissions and discharges of people were needed back home. In retrospect, it is clear that asylum doctors should have objected more, more loudly, to, this, to, to these kinds of committals, on the grounds that treating the mentally ill is the core focus of psychiatry, providing convenient but inappropriate solutions to society's broader problems is not something psychiatry is good at, and it only contributes to, to, to broadening the, the ineffectiveness of psychiatry if you keep admitting people that can't be treated. The use of psychiatry as an instrument, instrument for the attempted resolution of both psychiatric and non-psychiatric problems thus has a long history in Ireland. As a result, while it's apparent the asylum and the diagnosis of mental disorder may be associated with stigma and shame, this is a movable feast dependent on society's capricious desire to deal with, or more accurately avoid, the misunderstood, the unwanted, the other, and the awkward issues that still trouble Irish society. As is often the case in the history of psychiatry, though, all evidence uh, can be quietly ignored when Irish society has a problem that needs an apparent solution. And just as previous problems were solved by building asylums, psychiatry is today continually called upon. And issues of shame and stigma are brushed to one side extremely quickly as complex social issues are psychiatrized off the real agenda. And this keeps happening. Psychiatry is centered on the treatment of people in profound states of psychological distress, like this man, trying to make him more like this man, 
that's what we do. Uh, the provision of support to families and the provision of mental well-being. Psychiatry is a deeply inappropriate vehicle for sorting out broader, awkward social problems, either in the 1800s or today in recent legislation, which seems to be using suicide to try and just smooth over certain problems. Society is too frightened to face itself. The lessons of history are very clear in this regard. The more inappropriately psychiatry is used by society, the greater will be the misunderstandings about it, the broader the stigma, and the deeper the shame. Thank you very much. Thank <laughs> you.